Thank you for downloading this sermon brought to you by the preaching ministry of Liberty Baptist Church of Las Vegas, Nevada, Dr. David Tice. For more sermons in both audio and video format, we encourage you to visit experienceliberty.com. Also, for a word of encouragement, insight, and biblical inspiration, follow Pastor David Tice's blog at davidtice.com. So without further ado, let's open our hearts to the Word of God. Joshua chapter number 5 is where we are today. And today, uh, I just want to encourage you in the Word of God. This passage of Scripture is an encouragement to me as I've been studying it, and I know it'll be a help to you this morning. A few weeks ago, we started this series entitled Phase 2. Let's see what God's next step is for the children of Israel. Oftentimes, we look at the foundations and we look at the uh, construction of a thing, and as we sit down and look at them, we say, okay, we've got this done, we figured this part out, we might take out tools, and we have a good idea of what God's doing or what God's not going to do, and then we get to a certain phase of a project, or we get to a certain phase of life, and it becomes status quo, it becomes easy. Now, don't raise your hand, but have you ever come to a place in your life where you thought, it's good right now? In fact, I, I don't know that I want anything to change. I'm okay with where we are right now. And then God will give you something. He will change your life in some way or manner or tell you to take a step of faith. And rather than just being stuck where you are or enjoying, can I use the word, the mediocrity of that finished phase, God says it's time to go to phase two. Well, in the passage of scripture that we've been studying in the book of Joshua, we're highlighting the children of Israel's journey into the promised land. God had made a promise to them hundreds of years before that this sliver of land just to the east of the Mediterranean would be their promised land. It was a place that God had blessed, a land flowing with milk and honey. And yet for several years, they lived down in Egypt. This nation that started with Abraham had been enslaved under Pharaoh's rule, and so God used Moses to bring them out. And for 45 years, because of a lack of faith on their part, they wandered in the wilderness. But now, Moses, my servant, is dead. Joshua chapter 1 says, it's time for them to move into a place of ownership, a place of their adopting the nation of Canaan for their own. And so Joshua chapter 3, 4 that we've read, we saw how God, and for those of you who've been with us, forgive the review, we saw how God brought them over the River Jordan. That River Jordan that was a huge, mighty flowing tempest, about as wide as this auditorium and as deep as many places would be uh, three to ten feet deep, the Bible tells us that God dried that place out and the river heaped itself upon itself and the children of Israel walked over on dry ground. In verse number one of chapter number five, the text for our morning study begins when it says, and it came to pass, when all the kings of the Amorites, which were on this side of Jordan westward and all the kings of the Canaanites, which were by the sea, they heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of Jordan from below the children of Israel until we were passed over that their heart, what's the next word? Melted. Their heart melted. Neither was their spirit in them anymore because of the children of Israel. When God brought his people across the Jordan River, something happened to those would-be enemies. Those folks who had so much might and had so much arrogance and their walled cities and their Canaanite heathen uh, devilish gods, all that power and might and pride the Bible tells us their heart melted within them 
because God had put this in a place in today's lesson is that it's not just business, it's personal. And that's what I want you to take away from today. That this thing of their walk with God was no longer just this business. It wasn't this institutional thing. It's intended to be personal. God had shown a sign of strength. That sign of solidarity, when they came across the Jordan River, God had shown them to bring these 12 rocks and heap these 12 rocks upon each other. And when the children of Israel would come by, a little boy would buy, walk by and say, Dad, what is, what's that heap of rocks there for? The dad was supposed to say, God, your God, our God, has brought us into this land of promise. This isn't just my God. This isn't just your mom's God. This is our God. Your God took us across this Jordan River on dry ground. And the same God who is able to do that in our life is able to do that in your life because he's our God's son. And so this sign of solidarity was put up. But also, this was a show of strength. First of all, I want to thank Brianna for taking my picture. And uh, it was, uh, we had to take a couple of shots for it, but we were able to get it on there. And so I want to, I want to thank Brianna for the patience and the, the skillful use of her camera to, to get that on there. When they came across the Jordan River, this was not just a sign of, look what we will do. It was a demonstration of the power and might of God. The, the gods of the Amorites and the gods of the Canaanites, they can't dry up rivers. For crying out loud, they can't even move. We have to carry them, put them on the backs, and put them into the next places. Our gods don't do anything, but their god dried up a river. It was a sign of solidarity. It was a show of strength. And so in this place, we see that there was great institutional might. Point number one in your notes today is melting hearts and sharpened blades. God shows incredible institutional might. How does he do that? Well, number one, he shows that through his miracles. The Bible says in verse number one that they heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of Jordan. God is a powerful God. God is a strong God. God's not weak. God can perform miracles. And the God of the universe who could dry up dry ground, who could dry up the Jordan River, is the same God who can go into Jericho. He's the same God that can confront Pharaoh. He's the same God that can help somebody in a burning, fiery furnace. He's the same God that Elijah would call upon. That God walked with David. That God gave wisdom to Solomon. God is a God of miracles. He's such a miraculous God that he could become a human, be born in a manger of a virgin, could live a perfect life, perform 37 different acts of wonder and miraculous work through his life as recorded in the Gospels, die on a cross, be buried, that same God, the God of miracles, rose again. And that same God saved sinners today. God is a God of the miraculous. And so he demonstrates that institutional might. I can take care of an entire nation and I can take care of him through my miracles. My purposes then are to work with men. I'm so glad that God uses people, aren't you? I'm so thankful that he's not waiting for AI to do his work. I'm so thankful that he's not waiting for perfection to do his work. God uses man. He uses all humankind, all sorts of people. He uses rich people, small people. He uses multi-generational people. He uses multicultural people. I love that we have a multicultural church. Aren't you thankful we have a multicultural church? 
It was fun watching our multicultural church try to clap during the choir special today. <laughs> because some of the people in our multicultural church, they were just right with it. And then there were others of us who were like... <laughs> and you know who you are. Because <laughs> I was one of them. <laughs> like, oh, we're doing the clapping thing. And I, I'm so glad we have a multicultural church, don't you? Because God is a multi-generational God. God is a multicultural God. God is the God of the entire world. And he desires to use men. He desires to use you. He desires to use me. So the Bible teaches us that they had melting hearts because of the institutional might that God had performed through his miracles because of his men and because of their mission. What was their purpose? Now, everyone on the other side of Jordan understands we're moving in. We're moving in. I had my neighbor across the street when they passed the new squatter laws. My neighbor across the street several years ago, there was a, a guy who was in the garage. And when the garage was open, I, I hadn't seen him there before, but he had the garage open and he was out there one day just kind of sitting in the garage on a lawn chair. And I walked by, I'm like, hey, my neighbor's name was Matt. I'm like, hey, are you renting the house from Matt? Yeah. Awesome. And then the next day, this new neighbor who was renting the house from Matt had another friend. And there was about six of them, about three or four days later, just hanging out in the house. He came over one night and said, hey, our phone isn't working. Could I use your phone? This is with landlines. I said, oh, sure, here, go ahead, use my phone. And he called somebody, and there was a party going on that night. That weekend, about three days later, Matt came up. And there were cops all around. And I said, what's going on? He said, these people are just staying in my house. I don't know who they are. I've never seen them before. And I can't kick them out. And he was going crazy because these folks had just kind of moved in. They were unwelcome guests. Every single person on the other side of Jordan understood this is now the Israelites' home. This is now our home. And they knew they could do nothing to stop it. Their hearts melted within them. Now, this is what's amazing. Though there were melting hearts, and the power of God was going to work institutionally through his might, this is the whole essence of where we're talking about today. God wants there to be an individual motivation. It's one thing for us to have a great love for our country. It's another, it's another thing to have an individual, motive, intimate motivation. I was at Disneyland with a friend of mine whose name is Chris, and Chris was a lieutenant colonel in the uh, Air Force. Went to church here, they've now moved. Our families were at Disneyland, and as we were waiting for the parade, the, um, they had a flag retreat ceremony. So the flag was going to come down. And as the flag retreat ceremony came out, the little Disneyland band came out and they started singing. And as soon as that happened, I'm dealing with kids and eating churros and looking for Mickey Mouse. You know, this is what I'm doing. My friend who was a lieutenant colonel who had given 20 years of his life to the United States Armed Forces, he stood up and he stood like this. And as I'm eating a churro and looking for Mickey Mouse, looking around, I look up at Chris and I'm like, oh yeah. <laughs> and I put my hand over my heart like this because I love America. But he had an intimate motivation with it. 
He loved America. Do you understand the difference there? I think sometimes in our walk with God, we have an institutional might where, yay, Jesus, go church. Yes, <laughs> we'll see you later, buddy. It's my show. All right, yeah. <laughs> Take care. All right. <laughs> I should have him go next week. It'd probably be better, right? And so, in the <laughs> that was so cute. Bye. <laughs> I'm now in trouble. <laughs> the beatings will begin. Okay, so whatever is going to go on back, I'm sure it's all good. So in this institutional demonstration of force, in this institutional, oh, look, the power and might of God. Look, I, am, I will like Christian posts. I will serve in a church. I will be part. I'm all for God. It comes to a place where it's not just about what the institution can do, but is there an intimate motivation the scriptures I'm going to read are somewhat awkward, so forgive me for the awkward nature of this, but I think it's important that we're Bible students, okay? The Bible tells us this, that God desires for them not just to be institutionally for what God wants them to do, but to be intimately or individually motivated. Will you read with me some of the awkward uh, scripture passages? Look at verse number two. And at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make these sharp knives, and circumcise again the children of Israel the second time. Now, this isn't saying that an individual was supposed to have a second circumcision. Forgive the, the awkward nature of this, okay? But it had been about 40 years since anyone had adopted this sign or this token of allegiance or promise covenant to God. And so the Bible says, circumcise again the children of Israel the second time, and Joshua made him sharp knives and circumcised the children of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. We're talking about individual might, institutional might, but notice when you get to a token of allegiance and not trying to be inappropriate, it becomes very personal. Do you see how it becomes very personal? It's not just, look at this! It comes about an individual at this place in verse number three. Now, the passage of circumcision, I'm not going to take a whole lot about this, but I want you to understand why this was important to Joshua, especially here in phase two. To be an Israelite or to be a Jew, an offspring of Abraham, there was a God, God covenant between Abraham and his descendants. And God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless thee, and out of thee shall all nations of the earth be blessed. You're going to be as the stars of the heaven, as the sands of the sea. Uh, you're going to, you are going to bless all nations. And I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I will take care of you. And God and Abraham made this agreement together. God kept his part of the bargain. And Abraham and his descendants were to demonstrate or show this token of obedience. It's first written in Genesis chapter 17 and verse number 11. And ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and there shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. Circumcision was not just something that they did for kicks and giggles. It was something that they did because it was a sign. It was a personal, perhaps one of the most intimate ways that a Jewish person could demonstrate their allegiance to the God of the heavens. It was, it was, this is mine. It's not just ours. This is mine. Whenever the children of Israel were to go uh, to Egypt, 
God says this again to Moses. He says, and it came to pass by the way in the inn that the Lord met with him, Moses, and sought to kill him because Moses was trying to brush off this important token or this important sign of intimate relationship with God. Now, in the New Testament, the Bible tells us that uh, circumcision profiteth nothing. So there's no need for a person in the New Testament, a person who's put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. This, during this season or dispensation, was a time where God said, this is the way we will demonstrate allegiance to me. And so in this very personal matter, God is taking the institutional might and he's making it very intimate. Now, don't lose the lesson on that. God desires for us all to have a personal relationship with him. Oh, it's great to be part of a church. It's great to be part of a, a group of people. But you have to have a relationship with God. Do you have a personal relationship with God? Not something that you've heard about, not something that people have told you you should do, but do you have a personal relationship with God? Was there a time in your life when you recognized your sin has separated you from God? Has there been a time in your life when you recognized that because of your sin, you'll never be good enough to get to heaven? In fact, you deserve to go to hell. Has there ever been a time in your life when you realized that Jesus, God in human flesh, died on a cross to pay for your sins, was buried and rose again, and you asked him to save you? Not just going through some traditional corporate worship thing, but has there been a time when you and God had a conversation? I'm a sinner. You're the Savior. Will you forgive me of my sins? My friend, all of us need to have a personal, intimate, real relationship with Jesus Christ. How's your relationship with God? Do you have a relationship with God? I, I, I love the Christian marketplace that we are able to enjoy in America. Do you know they don't have that in the Sudan and North Korea? You know that, don't you? You put a fish on the back of your car in Korea, if you're allowed to have a car, it doesn't go well for you. You in the Sudan, if you walk around and say, I am not ashamed, you might be slaughtered that night. So I appreciate the Christian marketplace that we are able to enjoy here in America. But putting a Christian symbol on your door or on your car, or on your Facebook page or your social media outlet, that does not bring Christianity. You have to have a relationship with God. So do you have a relationship with God? Notice three things about this relationship with God. Number one, this act put them in a place of being prepared to do what God wanted them to do in the next phase. The Bible says in Joshua chapter 5 and verse number 7, and their children whom he raised up in their stead, them Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised them by the way. For 40 years, we imagine, for about 40 years, the children of Israel had left off that important token. Yet we, that's, we don't want to do that. Yeah, let's, let's not do that. Let's not do this. But on this day, they said, we're preparing ourselves for phase two. We are taking time, we're taking stock of ourselves, and we want to be prepared. Are you prepared to meet God? Number two, are you prepared to do the work of God in your life? I think sometimes we're so focused on a hundred different things that we're not prepared for what God has for us. Notice this. It puts in their life purity. Obedience to the word of God 
will bring the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. And these men and these, uh, these men, leaders of their families, were saying, we don't care how much it hurts. We don't care how much it costs. We don't even mind how vulnerable we are going to become. We want to have a pure heart before God. And so we are consecrating individually in the most intimate way possible. We are consecrating ourselves to phase two, what God has for us. Are you and God in that type of relationship? There's a whole lot of things between you and him. Oh, I'll obey God if, I'll obey God when, I'll obey God but. And those if, whens, and buts, they have so much separated between us and God. Notice what he does. These people, they say, we're all in on this. In the most intimate and individualistic way, we are committing ourselves to God and his work. Are you there? It's not an easy thing. <laughs> it's not something that's just a whole lot of fun. Sometimes when you're giving yourself completely God, it puts you in a very vulnerable and compromised position. But it's trusting that the God who brought me through on dry ground will, will be able to take me where I've got to go next. Notice what the Bible says. It wasn't necessarily all about this whole act because God demonstrates that the outward man is supposed to reflect what has happened on the inward part of a person's life. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, and forgive the length of this, it's a long passage of scripture, but I want you to see the heart of God and not just hear my opinion about this. The Bible says, And now, Israel, what doth the Lord my God require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. To keep the commandments of thy heart and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. Behold, the heaven. And the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God, the earth also, with all that therein is. Only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them, even you above all people, as it is this day. Notice this, verse 16. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart. I want you to be right with me in your heart. Well, I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this. Would you allow that which has been done on the inside to be manifest on the outside? So many times we want to put all of these constraints on our lives to be this kind of person, and God says, it doesn't happen out here. It should come forth from in here. Does that make sense? If it does, say yes. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart, he says, and be no more stiff-necked, for the Lord your God is a God of gods. And the Lord of lords, he's a great God. He's a mighty and terrible, which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. Oh, God is a good God. You should follow him. Number two, the manna halts and the sequel begins. God desires not just to demonstrate institutional might, but he shows an intimate motivation. Okay, point number two. When the manna halts, the sequel begins. Look at verse number 10. And the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month, even in the plains of Jericho. One of my favorite holidays is Thanksgiving. Don't you love Thanksgiving? On Thanksgiving, you're expected to eat a lot of food. I like that kind of day. And so I think probably the closest or the most um, associated Jewish holiday with Thanksgiving would have been this idea of the Passover. And so in verse number 10, the Passover begins and the children of Israel are able to eat this wonderful meal. 
Now, I'm going to invite my uh, ushers. Ushers, if you would, please come on up, and you can follow along with me in verse number 11. This isn't an offering. This is a time where we are giving right now. So go ahead and just pass them all out, and you can follow along in verse number 11. The Bible says, and they did eat of the old corn of the land on the morrow. Everyone, take one of these bags. Everyone, take one of the bags. Don't leave it there. And they did eat of the old corn on the land on the morrow of the Passover, unleavened cakes and parched corn in the selfsame day. They see the institutional might of God. And after they see and witness the institutional might of God, there's an intimate motive that starts to demonstrate itself. God, we are in allegiance to you. God, we are following you. And after that comes, they are in the place of the promised land. And the very first Thanksgiving, the very first Passover time takes place there in the land. And the children of Israel have a... Now, don't eat it yet. Oh, my goodness. Some of you are just already eating. No, I saw you swallow, Megan. Don't do that. You're chewing on it right now. All right? Don't eat it yet. We will all do this together. Let's do a little corporate thing together, okay? Now, notice this. There is a temporary treat. There's a temporary treat. For those of you who are in the back, I'm sorry, it is coming. It'll be here soon. But look at what the Bible says in verse number 12. In verse number 12, the Bible says, and the manna, and the manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten of the old corn of the land. Neither had the children of Israel manna anymore, but they did eat of the fruit of the land and of Canaan that land. Okay. We see a temporary treat comes to an end. In Exodus chapter 16 and verse number 14, this thing called manna is implemented. You can open up your thing and you can eat it, okay? If you haven't gotten it yet, share with one of your friends beside you. The Bible tells us this whenever manna is first given. This is popcorn. If you have a peanut allergy, good luck. I don't know what it is. If you have some type of, this is just, this is just kettle corn popcorn, Okay. The Bible tells us this. When did manna come into fruition? Look at Exodus chapter 16, verse 14. It's on the screen. And when the dew that was laid was gone up, behold, upon the face of the wilderness, there came a small round thing. Do any of you see a small round thing? Did you already eat your small round thing? Okay. There was a small round thing as small as the hoarfrost on the ground. And when the children of Israel saw it, they said one to another... It is manna. It is manna means, what is it? That's what the word manna means. It's like, what is that? What is that? And so out in, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they didn't have farms. They didn't have crops. They didn't have a whole lot of anything. They had just what they could carry with them. And so if you're a mom, you're starting to think, how are we going to feed my babies? And so God, miraculously, miraculously, God said, every morning, go out there, go out into the fields. And when they went out into the field, they found this little round thing. Ooh, what is that? And they called it manna. And the Bible tells us that they were supposed to gather it all day long, or not all day long, they were just supposed to get enough for one day. Oh, there's some more manna. And there's some manna in here from the last service. <laughs> and they were supposed to have just a little bit of manna, enough to take them through the next day. But what, what are we going to eat tomorrow? <clears throat> <clears throat> a little bit of manna stuck in my... 
what are we supposed to eat tomorrow? Oh, you go out tomorrow and there'll be manna there again. Well, what are we supposed to eat the next day? And every day, God provided for the manna. Every single day, there was manna. And they had, I wonder how they did manna. I wonder if they had fried manna, boiled manna, manna a la king, <laughs> scalloped manna, mashed manna, all sorts of manna. They would have made manna for many, many years. In fact, <coughs> for over 40 years, this was the primary dietary supplement of the children of Israel. Every single day, they ate their manna. Every single day, they ate their manna. Mom, can I go outside? Not until you finished your manna. They ate manna every single day. And God had miraculously... <coughs> God had miraculously... Mike, would you get me a bottle of water? Mike Balcone. Mike, who's sitting down. Thank you. Yeah, you know, oh, you got me one. Oh, good job. You haven't used that yet, have you? You can throw it. Good. Somebody drink out of this. It's <clears throat> okay, good. I needed that. There was a, there was a, um, every day they ate manna. But on this day, in Joshua chapter 5 and verse number 13, no more manna. No more manna. Didn't matter where they were, every day for the last 40 years, there were kids who grew up and all they knew was manna. There were moms that had gotten through and made recipe books with manna. Maybe they had spicy manna. Maybe they had sweet manna. But all they knew was manna for 40 years. For 40 years, all they knew was manna. But on this day, the manna stops. Why? Because they weren't supposed to eat manna for their entire lives. It was just a temporary treat. It was just something for this small space of time between Exodus and the promised land. Are you going to have this manna? But for 40 years, they had this temporary treat. But God never wanted them to eat manna. What did he want them to eat? The Bible says in Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 24, But I have said unto you, ye shall inherit their land, and I will give it unto you to possess it, a land that floweth with what? Floweth with what? Where does milk come from? And if you say an almond, you can leave right now, okay? <laughs> Where does milk come from? It comes from a what? Okay, in order to have milk, you have to have good, strong livestock. You have to have livestock that is feeding and grazing well, that is reproducing, that is calving little baby cows. You have to have, in order to have milk, it demonstrates a whole lot of wealth and prosperity. It demonstrates a robust culture. It demonstrates an environment where there's a whole lot of opportunity. You want to have milk in your society, but not only do they have milk, what else do they get? They get honey. They get that which is sweet, the natural resources of the land. Now, don't miss the point. The point is so profound. For 40 years, the children of Israel were eating. What is it? And now there was a time, 
manna. I don't know. What is it? It's manna for 40 years. But God didn't want them to eat manna. God wanted them to enjoy the wealth of the land. God wanted them to enjoy the milk and the honey. God wanted them to move from phase one and move into phase two. And if we get stuck satisfying ourselves with manna and looking for a promotion and driving a new car and looking at all that this world has to offer and uh, pursuing entertainment and pursuing this luxury. When we live our lives in that way, we are just tasting the temporary treats that God might even provide and that God has allowed us to benefit from. But that's not what life is all about. God desires for us to change from phase one and move into phase two. And when you get into phase two, there's milk and honey. And I want you to know, I like steaks and baked potato a whole lot more than I do popcorn. And here's the principle that God shares with us. You can move from this temporary treat if you will be, what does God say in chapter one? Be thou strong and very courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. But how many people do you know are satisfied with the mediocrity of the temporary life? They're looking for the next pay grade. They're looking for the next uh, open sector to pursue. And God wants us to live our lives for something more than that. But it doesn't happen when we are just institutionally motivated. There has to be an intimate motivation where God and I get alone with him and say, God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? Is there a sin in my life that is an obstacle from showing me your face and demonstrating your presence in my life? Because if I'm stuck in the mediocrity of phase one, oh, I just love phase one, the man tasted so good. Do you remember whenever we used to have manna fruit cakes? Oh, those were the best. Do you remember whenever mom would make the, the wonderful manna breakfast? Oh, that was so good. And there's a nostalgia that comes in phase one of just enjoying and reminiscing <coughs> a culture of the blessings of phase one. But God says you were never supposed to stay there. It's time for you to move into the second phase. And the second phase is milk and and honey, are you stuck in phase one? <coughs> Have you allowed yourself to enjoy the adventure of phase two? Because phase two, it's pretty, pretty cool. It's pretty awesome. But a lot of times we get comfortable and we're saying, you know, just give me some more manna. I'm good right here. I'm good right now. Oh, no, that... Let's just stay here. Is your walk with God stale? Is your walk with God mediocre? Are you comfortable with the malaise of that which is present? Or do you have your eyes fixed on what God wants you to do next? I think we all struggle with that. You go through a season, go through a busy season, like, oh, and I think God gives times of rest. Oh, for sure he gives times of rest. But the times of rest are so that we can pursue greater adventures and expansion of his kingdom. Have you been resting too long and it's time to put the manna away and go to phase two? That's what these folks are dealing with. We enjoy the Passover. We're getting rid of the manna. The final point is this. There's a mysterious helper and a servant bows. On the horizon from where they are enjoying this newfound Thanksgiving meal, this Passover, 
on the horizon, you can probably see the lights and the candles flickering from Jericho. Perhaps you can even hear some of the chatter and the clatter of the busyness of this place that has walled itself off for an impending invasion, Jericho. The walls of Jericho were so wide that they would have chariot races, historians will tell us, on the top of those walls. It was a, it was a formidable fortress, impenetrable. There's no technology. There's no B-2 bombers. They don't have the Thunderbirds to swoop in and swoop out. There's nothing that can take that structure, humanly speaking, but God. And so on the eve or the precipice of the battle with Jericho, you can imagine Joshua after eating the Passover meal and in a moment of solitude is where we find him, I believe, in verse number 14. He's all by himself, and I imagine him looking over at Jericho, the first battle in phase two. Okay, we did this. We crossed the River Jordan. We set up the monuments. We did this circumcision thing. We even had the Passover. Now it's about to get real. There's going to be bloodshed. There's going to be a lot of pain. This is a hard step of faith because there's a looming conflict. Joshua's standing on the edge of the camp in verse number 14. Excuse me, verse number 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him. And his sword was drawn in his hand. And Joshua went out unto him. I like Joshua. And the reason I like Joshua is because he accepts the challenge of the day. Uh-oh, dude with a sword. Call 911. Get the first responders in here. Could somebody please find a police officer? I am the captain. I don't deal with these things. No, Joshua is the general. And when a guy comes at him and he's got a sword drawn in his hand, what does Joshua do? Giddy up. Let's go. If it starts now, let's start now. He sees this figure out there, knows his sword drawn in his hand, and when he confronts him, he boldly asserts himself into this conflict. He says, Joshua went unto him and he said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? You on our side or are you on their side? Let me know. <coughs> and you better respond quickly. Can you see that in Joshua's imposing voice? Verse number 14 says, And he said, Nay. Notice how the mysterious helper responds. I'm not on either one of those sides. What do you mean, not on either one of the sides? But as captain of the host of the Lord, am I now come? I'm on my side. You better get on my side. Isn't that good? <laughs> are, you, are you with me or are you with them? No, the question is, are you with me? That's the real question. God, are you, are you helping me here? God, are you going to do this? No, the question is not, is God not your little genie in a bottle? The question is, are you living in service to the Lord? Because that's where the power is. Nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord, am I now come? So what does Joshua do? The Bible says, Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship. Whatever you say, boss. You're the boss. I, I'm following. I'm following you. I, I'm on your side. What do you want us to do? We can go back across Jordan if you need. What? We don't have any man. I wish I could share some with you. But whatever you need, I'll do whatever you need. He says, but his cap and he did worship, and he said unto him, what saith my Lord unto his servant? I am your, you're the boss, I, whatever you say. 
And notice what the Bible tells us. And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, now this is really interesting, I'm the Lord's captain. And what we find is that this is not just any angel. This is not just some manifestation. We believe that this is Jesus Christ in human flesh. There's about 50 times in the Old Testament where Jesus Christ would appear in physical form before uh, his servants. There was one time in the book of Daniel where Nebuchadnezzar said, there were, didn't we throw three people into that fiery furnace? Now there's four, and the fourth is like unto uh, the Son of God. God met with Abraham before he would destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. It was Jesus that met with him. There was a time whenever Jacob was wrestling with him. If you want to know a, a cool theological term, if you want to impress your mom this afternoon, call her up. What did you learn about in church today? Learn about theophanies. Use the word theophany. The Old Testament word where Jesus appeared as himself in the Old Testament, pre-incarnate, pre-Bethlehem, pre-manger, is the, is the theological word theophany. So Jesus is literally meeting with Joshua here. We know it's Jesus because he receives worship. We know it's Jesus because look what the Bible says here. And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoes from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is what? It's holy. What does that recall? It goes back to phase one. We're not doing something brand new. We're not even trying something different. We're just continuing on what God has done in the past. This is what's beautiful. Whenever we understand that God wants us to move from phase one, moving into phase two, it's not just an institutional might. There's an individual or an intimate motivation that helps me work through a place of understanding I'm not living for this. There's bigger things that God has for my life than just these temporal dalliances that I may or may not enjoy. There's so much more going on here than just this. So I go and say, okay, my life is lived in service. So who am I going to obey? I want to make sure God's with me. Nope. You want to make sure you're with God. Because phase two is only going to be completed if you are on God's team. So the question is this. Are you comfortable in the malaise and the mediocrity of your own experience? I'm good. Are you good there? Or are you in a place where you say, okay, God, with the strength and the courage that Joshua had, I'm willing to move forward and take your plan, take your uh, purposes to follow your phase for what is next. I believe that in this room, there are people that God wants to do great things through. I believe that in this room, there's no one who should be satisfied with the status quo. I don't know that anybody in here has peaked. Oh, I peaked. I'm done. I remember 20 years ago. I don't think that anybody in here, God's still giving you breath in your lungs because you peaked 15 years ago. I just believe that there's a next phase that God wants you to go through. And, and maybe that phase has a little bit different understanding and maybe it looks a little bit different and maybe we're not harvesting manna like we were in the past. But if we are not strong and of a good courage like Joshua was willing to take that mission upon us, not just in a corporate sense, but in an individual sense, we're going to be stuck chewing on manna all our lives and that's not where God wants us. So the question to you is this. Are you ready for phase two? Do you have a personal relationship with Christ? Are you, are you satisfied with the temporal things of this earth that are all going to fade and go away? This, oh, this is what life's all about. I got a raise. Oh, I got time off. Oh, look at the vacation we're going to. None of those things are bad. But is that what's satisfying your existence? It's temporal. It's fleeting. It's not that which is milk and honey. And then how do I know? Oh, the way I know that I'm ready for phase two is when I bow to the master and say, God, I don't need you on my team. I need to be on your team. It's very similar, but it's much different.
Oh, maybe God's working. Oh, God, oh look. No, God, I'm following you. And that's the emphasis of phase two. Father, thank you for your word and the time together today. We pray to encourage my friends and help us as we seek to honor you in whatever area or calling you've purposed for us. We hope that message was an encouragement to your heart. Now for weekly updates and for information about Liberty Baptist Church, be sure to follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at LBC of Las Vegas. Well, that's it for today. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, God bless.